0: John Rogers is chairman and CEO of Aerial Investments. it has got $13 billion under management. It's the largest black-owned investment firm in the country. He's been running it for more than 35 years. Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm John Fort from CNBC. This week, my conversation with John Rogers. We talk about a lot of stuff, including why he likes to eat one meal a day at McDonald's. Now, he once beat Michael Jordan playing basketball one-on-one. No joke. Seriously. It's on YouTube. Here's John Rogers. John Rogers, Jr. Uh, Thanks for sitting down with me for Fort Knox. Uh, The founder and CEO of Ariel Investments, 13 billion under management. Um, So first of all, you started Ariel in your early 20s. Yeah, I
1: was very fortunate. (laughs) (laughs) How'd you do that? Well, um, the fortunate thing was that my father had bought stocks for me every birthday and every Christmas after I was 12. And as time went on, he let me make my own investment decisions. And when I got to college, he turned the whole portfolio over to me. So I started trading stocks. I had a broker right across the street from campus and just fell in love with the markets. So I started out at William Blair for two and a half years as a stockbroker and felt like at age 24, I was ready to uh, go out and start a money management and mutual fund company. And I think I was confident because several of our stocks did really well. And that gave me confidence.
0: Uh, for, for a black man born in 1958, that's an unusual backstory. Tell me, tell me sort of how you got into that community. Your parents were both lawyers, right? Yes.
1: Well, you know, my father um, was a Tuskegee Airman, mm-hmm. and I came around kind of late. My dad was already almost 40 years old when I was born, so he had a l- lot of time to plan my life, you know. <laughs> and so at certain could age, be good or... he <laughs> He was very strict about it. <laughs> okay. a certain age, I had to have a checking account, a savings account, a brokerage account, a summer job at age 16. So all these things were, you know, he instilled in me and there was no uh, argument about it. You were going to have to do that. And in hindsight, it was really thoughtful. It made, got me exposed to a lot of things to be able to be comfortable in the financial markets at a very young age. But it was my dad's persistence that made that happen. So you're getting stocks for your birthday and Christmas at age 12. Are you happy about that at that point? Well, at first I wasn't, uh, because, you know, you got used to toys when you're that age and new games and fun things. But the thing that he did that was nice is that every three months I would get a quarterly dividend check. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And he let me spend the money on anything I wanted. And as the years went on, those dividend checks got a little bigger, a little bigger and started to be meaningful. So I wasn't as unhappy any longer to be getting the stocks. I'd look forward to it and, and again, help him pick the new stocks for me, which was really, really fun. Ah, and, and so take me now to today. And clearly
0: you've grown. You, you've got dozens of employees. Is it, is it 88 now or 100? We're actually up 100? to about 100 right now. 100? So um, why are you... Uh, at that size now versus where you were before. Um, Tell me about the points of growth and the investing philosophy.
1: Well, I think that uh, we've been successful, I think, for a couple of reasons. I think number one, of course, in this business is performance. And we can demonstrate uh, our aerial fund started in 1986. You know, it's uh, well ahead of its benchmarks since then. And it's had the same portfolio manager over this entire (laughs) uh, period. And so there's not many fund families that have that kind of long-term performance with that continuity in management. Uh, we've had a particularly great 10 years where we're actually number one in our category in the sort of mid-cap core and mid-cap value, depending whether it's Lipper or Morningstar.
0: Now, for the people who aren't deep in stocks since pre-teen, tell them what, what that means in terms of the size of the companies, the types of companies that you are focused on, and maybe the types that you're saying, nah, not, not for not for me.
1: Well, our focus from the very beginning and my original business plan was to focus on small and mid-sized companies. So instead of owning giant companies like Procter & Gamble, we would own a smaller company like Smuckers, you know, something like that. We don't want the the biggest companies because we feel like the biggest companies are well-researched. Everyone knows all there is to know about those companies already, and so it's hard to find a bargain. Mm -hmm. But sometimes in the small and mid-sized companies, they fall through the cracks. There's not as much research being done, and then we could uh, hopefully find some uh, hidden gems in that small and mid-cap arena. And that's been our focus. We've been fishing in that same fishing pond for over 30, uh, 35 years now. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we also try to do is have a Warren Buffett kind of patina to it. So if you find a small cap or mid-cap company to make sure it's got strong brands, And we are highly confident that company will still be around 5, 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. It's got a strong balance sheet. It's got some kind of moat around it to stop new competitors uh, from coming in. And um, so that's kind of our strategy. Give an example. What's one of those first diamonds in the rough that
0: you found in the early mid-80s?
1: I was talking about this the other day. Uh, We had a lot of fun with toy companies. Mm -hmm. They did really well for us. So companies like Tonka, uh, Viewmaster Ideal. Hmm. Uh, I remember visiting Brooklyn to see Topps, the baseball card company. Yeah. And they had Bazooka Bubblegum. And it was just such a fun company to invest in. And eventually all those companies got consolidated. Bigger companies bought them. But those are some early winners for us that really helped us establish ourselves. What did you see? What, what, what triggered your interest in those companies at that time? I could understand that uh, they had their unique niches and that they were going to be perennial brands that would be popular for a long time. I wasn't buying fad companies, but you know, again, companies that had a long-time future. And to, uh, you had a confidence they were being well-managed. We got to go out and visit and meet with those management teams. And those early stocks um, were really important for us. It got us on the map because they did so well, and we had outperformance in those early years. Now, um,
0: I feel like I'm going to play a little game of, is it true? Because because, uh, you've got some really interesting moments in your life. So is it true that you beat Michael Jackson, uh, Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, in one-on-one
1: basketball? It is true. I know it's hard to believe.
0: I'm not saying it's hard to believe, because you played at Princeton. I did. Right? Um, and, and so th- tell me how that goes down. Is that one of his camps?
1: Yeah, it was at one of his fantasy camps. You know, it was called the Senior Flight School, you know, for people, I think, over age 35. Okay. And one day, every day at camp, you know, um, he would challenge any camper to a game of one-on-one. And the first seven years, no one had ever beat him. And so I think I was fortunate. The day that I played him, he'd played about 20 campers that day already. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he was undefeated. So he was a combination of tired... And overconfident. <laughs> and with it being a short game, uh, I was able to uh, surprise him. So, what did you play to? Uh, this first one to score three baskets. Three, okay. Yeah, and um, Coach Carroll used to always say I was a good one on one player. Uh-huh. He said, because you don't have to pass when you're playing one on one. And he said when it came to passing, I was legally blind <laughs> and he could not teach vision. So, uh, okay. So, um, it was close, I take it. It was. And you can hear him on the video. It's, you know, it's uh, if you Google John oh, Rogers you, and Michael Jordan. Oh, you got video. All right. Pops right up. <laughs> and uh, you can hear him say, oh, no, when the last shot goes in. And Damien Williams, the comedian, immediately comes onto the court and starts making fun of Michael. <laughs> Just take those posters down of Jordan and replace them with Rogers. <laughs> that is uh, quite a feather
0: to have in your cap. D- tell me about. Um, basketball and when that really started in your life. I mean, I imagine you're playing at Princeton. You, you didn't start late in high school.
1: Uh, it takes a while to get there. You're right. It was a passion of mine in, in middle school, and then I went to the uh, University of Chicago Lab School, played high school basketball there, and ended up, you know, I was a Class A All-State player and had some success. Uh, also used to go to the basketball camp run by the then Chicago Bulls coach Dick Mata, he sort of made it clear I had a chance to play Division I, uh, and that would be as far as I'd, ab- I'd be able to go. Made both of those things clear? He did, which is really good of him. At an huh. early age, you know, when you're a high school person, you think you're pretty good, he's like, okay, you know, you're not going to be able to play professionally, and it's important for you to know that at this stage of your life. Did you ever second-guess that? No, no. Because I also I went to play for this Hall of Fame coach, you know, Pete Carill at Princeton, who was also very honest with you. Mm-hmm. And he told you uh, your weaknesses and your strengths. And I was very fortunate to just to make the team and to, to be on the team and to play for someone who really was an extraordinary teacher, mm. you know, the best teacher I ever, ever had by far. And so basketball really did transform, transform my life, and having a chance to play for Coach Carrill transformed my life. So he didn't teach you to pass? Yeah. No, he said he couldn't do that. <laughs> but he did teach you to think about your teammates first. Okay. And if you learn how to be a teammate, a good teammate, whether it's at work or in nonprofits you get involved in or whatever organizations you join, I think you're more effective when people see that you're trying to help the overall team win, not trying to position yourself uh, for something just for you. What does that mean in investing? I think in investing, it's something that uh, our firm, all of our employees own stock in the company, which is critical. We think if people are owners, they're gonna work extra hard and care about the business and care about our customers. Um, I think also we've tried to create a culture where everyone knows that all their ideas matter. And when you're researching companies, you want people to tell you the good and the bad about the companies and to feel comfortable challenging me if I have a thesis on why to buy this stock or not to say, you know, to challenge it because they know that I'm going to value everybody's uh, opinion. Mm -hmm. And so it it really does show up at work every single day. And also, of course, the way that you make your customers feel they're part of your team. And you're going to be doing what's best for them in everything that you do. So uh, it was really, again, a blessing to play for coach. Tell me about the partnership with Melody Hobson. How did that emerge? Well, I met Melody when she was a prospective Princeton student. So she was 17, 18 years old, and um, she became a summer intern. And she was saying recently uh, that uh, she's still the only person from her Princeton class of 1991 that still has the same phone number at work. (laughs) So she's been with us since she graduated, uh, 28 years. Uh, A fantastic, fantastic partner. You know, so I was just lucky to get to know her at an early age. But it's another example of, you know, I'm volunteering for Princeton, trying to help them recruit minority students to Princeton, and I meet Melody, who ultimately becomes our most valuable player. Hmm. So Coach was right. What
0: was it about her and her skills or the way she thinks that elevated her in that way?
1: Well, in the beginning, you could see she had this uh, enormous uh, charisma and sparkle, and she was willing to just, you know... uh, engage with everyone. She wasn't afraid of adults as a young person. She was going to let them know her truth and be comfortable about it. Uh, but as time went on, you realize she had extraordinary judgment. She just, just really, really did. She was extraordinarily smart. But probably equally importantly, she worked, you know, 24-7, every week, learning everything there was to know about the industry, because this wasn't her, you know, her life's work. She didn't have parents buying stocks for her as a kid. So she had to learn it uh, you know, through that internship. And then when she started, and there's just no substitute for that work ethic that she put into it. And eventually, um, you know, she's just become an extraordinary leader. And uh, so I'm really lucky to have her as a part of our team.
0: Yeah. Um, right now in America, I feel like we're at a point where a number of people are questioning capitalism. Um, and some of that, could be healthy because it's, capitalism is not uh, I believe intrinsically moral. you can apply uh, morals to whatever system um, but some of it I find troubling because I think personally capitalism is the the best financial uh, system um, when it 's given the right bounds well, what 's your perspective on what the upcoming uh, up and coming generations of Americans should think about when they think about What capitalism means to our culture, to our society, and the kinds of morals, uh, uh, regulations that need to be applied to it for it to work as well as it can.
1: Yes. Well, you know, I think, as, as Warren Buffett would say, you know, our capitalist democracy is not perfect by any means, but it's been it's been an extraordinarily successful framework for building this great American economy and why we've thrived since uh, you know, we started this country and why the markets have just continued to go higher and higher. So I think it's so important that uh, we teach this in public schools. You know, we've been very involved with financial literacy at Ariel and trying to get young people to understand the importance of business and that businesses provide jobs and economic opportunity for everyone. And as Warren says, we don't want to do anything that's going to, you know, screw up that golden goose that's laying these golden, golden eggs. It's really, really important. So I'm a big believer in our capitalist democracy. I think again we have to work on education, making sure everyone understands that, but also realizing that these things are going to go in cycles. That's the way America works. And maybe we had too many, you know, uh, we had too many regulations and too many things were going in the wrong direction and. and um, I think it's something that we have to uh, make sure that we don't move into a mindset that creates so many regulations mm. that it's hard for our capitalist democracy to be successful. Right. And so I think uh, this, will, this too will pass, and we'll get back to a more measured kind of uh, political leadership. I don't love the term
0: inequality, because equality suggests that, that- Two different sides are inherently supposed to have the same. But I guess there are some people who see an imbalance in how um, the distribution of wealth is playing out. Is there a problem in that that you see and what's the right recipe? You've mentioned education. Are there other components to it to uh, shifting the balance or uh, perhaps um, providing a pathway to those who have less?
1: Well, as I've talked about, I think it is so important that financial literacy is at the core. You know, we started a small public school uh, over 21 years ago when Arne Duncan worked at Ariel, and he was in charge of our community affairs well before he became Secretary of Education. So I always come back to that as being at the heart of this to make sure we're all prepared. But we also have to make sure that our corporate leaders and our big financial services firms include everyone, because unfortunately, people from... Lower socioeconomic backgrounds, often people of color, have not had the opportunities to get into the big investment banks, the private equity firms, the hedge funds, the venture capital firms, where so much of the wealth and jobs are being created today, and so much where the political power has been coming. So I think we have to push these major institutions to be more engaged and more inclusive, uh, and you know, we can do that through the bully pulpit, and you know, I'm involved with the financial services pipeline in Chicago where I co-chair, uh, which is all about getting more of us into that world. Uh, we created a program at the University of Chicago where I'm a longtime trustee, where minority and women students can get uh, paid internships at endowment offices, mm. in the investment office of endowment offices, to learn all about private equity. So I think what I'd like to see is more corporations partnering with urban public schools the way that we have, and to create real financial liter- literacy, create career paths and role models for everyone to be included. Mm-hmm. I think that's very, very, very important. And I also think that maybe at some point, you know, we are getting to a point where people who have these multi-billionaires, you know, who make a billion or more in a year, I think we're starting to get bump up against where it got to be a concern, you know, where the difference between what the lowest income and the highest income, all of us know John Paulson here in New York made $5 billion in one year. Mm-hmm. And I read that book, The Greatest Trade Ever, Ever Made. <laughs> and you would hope that more people could have shared in that kind of opportunity, uh, not just a few.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, shifting gears, um, I have read that over, over time you had a, a few interesting habits. Um, <laughs> oh, no.
1: <laughs> it took a long time. I'm wondering, are you still arm's length with technology? I'm arm's length. I mean, I, I, my daughter insisted that I get the the iPhone, okay. and, uh, <laughs> and got me on Instagram and all those things. And uh, What, what, so was, I, your, I what was your philosophy before? Because I don't want to get it wrong. Well, but the, you were holding off from using PCs and the internet Yeah, I out, still right? don't use a, a computer, and I still don't email. So I've stuck to a few core values, because I think that it sucks up your time. Mm-hmm. I like to spend my time reading, thinking about the markets, And I often, you know, I'm the person you'll see at McDonald's in the morning going through research reports from Wall Street firms and staying on top of the data I need to be effective. And if you're constantly getting pinged and buzzed and called and emailed, it's hard to concentrate and think about the market. And so I think it's important to be able to find a way to protect yourself a little bit. And that's been helpful. I ask because a lot of the culture seems to be coming around you on this
0: one right as we're realizing people have gotten you know hooked into social media into Facebook into, into Instagram et cetera, and it's sucking up people's time and attention and their data people are starting to say wait a second how do I how do I create some amount of space and
1: distance for me to be sure I'm having my own thoughts and not something that's being fed to me I I, I can't agree more and it's just this constantly coming at you and as you know we're long-term investors With a a turtle logo, we believe that patience is a winning strategy. And that's why I try to get away from that short-term noise. I really do. And I try to force myself to think out over the horizon as I think about our investment choices and the way that we uh, invest in the stock market. Now, you you mentioned uh, that you're the person
0: who people will see at McDonald's. For a long time, you would eat at least a meal a day from McDonald's, right? And you were on the board.
1: Uh, Yeah, still am. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, how, How did that come about?
1: I've always loved McDonald's since I was a kid. And um, sometimes I'd wished I had had my first summer job there. <laughs> Instead, I ended up being a vendor at Wrigley Field in Sox Park, you know, selling Cokes and peanuts and popcorn. But when I came home from college, I found that I just, it was a nice, peaceful oasis, a place where I could go and read. I enjoyed the food. And so I liked both the space as well as the quality of the food. And I've continued that throughout my adult life. Whenever I can get away, that's my sort of home away from home. And, uh, You know, I love it. There have been some people, Steve Jobs included, who
0: uh, would wear the same thing, if not every day, very often, in part to just one more decision that they didn't have to make, uh, a a bit of an oasis perhaps in mental space. Does that play into how you structure some things?
1: Yes, I try to keep my life very, very simple. So I basically, all of my suits look pretty much the same. All the shirts look the same. All my ties have turtles on them. Uh, I hadn't noticed that. So we try to, you know, make it easy. So people know what to get you. They do. Ties with turtles. That's right, yes. I mean, is that, I mean, I I imagine that, you know, people are going out, people who know you are going out trying to find creative ties with turtles. Every once in a while. I found this one recently that has a little bunny on the bottom of it. So it's kind of cool. All turtles and one bunny, which fits (laughs) our theme perfectly. The tortoise wins that race at the end. If you were to give everyday people, a couple
0: pieces of advice about how to think about investment and dealing with their assets in general. What would it be? Uh, Because a lot of people, they feel like, well, I I don't necessarily have a lot of money to invest in stocks. They're uh, concerned about uh, student loan debt, saving for an emergency fund, all these competing needs, not not to mention uh, thinking forward to their kids' needs. What are a couple of pieces of advice that you would give in today's environment for people thinking about how to invest
1: their capital in a way that makes sense for them? Well, first I would just say, get started. Because I find that it was just like with me as a kid. Once I started to get involved with the markets, I started trying to find extra money wherever I could find it. From my vending earnings or my gifts that someone gave me cash, I always put the money in the market and then I learned faster because I was really doing. So I tell people, just get in the markets, start playing the game, You'll love it. Mm-hmm. You'll love reading about it and studying about it. The second thing I say is just think long-term. You've got to be a long-term investor. Uh, I carry around in my wallet one of a, a, a page from one of Warren Buffett's annual, annual reports where he reminds you the last century the Dow started at 66 and the Dow ended at over 11,000. Mm-hmm. And that included you know, two world wars, Great Depression, all kinds of other catastrophes that faced our country. But eventually, the markets come back. So I tell people, invest for the long run. And then finally, um, another Warren thing is that he says, you know, stay within your circle of compet- competence. Hmm. Invest in what you understand. And don't try to chase the hottest, newest concept, but invest in a business that you feel confident and comfortable with, that you can own for the long run, and you'll be successful. So if I think you do all those things, just get involved, think long-term, invest in what you understand, it's a way for you to be a successful investor.
0: Hmm. That's great. You, you've also been on the board of Nike. Uh,
1: new, new board member.
0: Okay. Um, does that fit within, you feel, your circle of competence? You, you clearly have background in athletics. Um, you have been on boards before of, of large companies, but you've invested in small. How did, how did that fit into your sense of, this is a company I think is, is interesting and one that I want to spend time focused on?
1: Well, you know, I did a lot of soul searching about it because I, f- I felt that at this stage of my life three boards was about the amount that I could sort of tackle effectively and I could learn a lot and hopefully contribute a lot and be a part of the family and so that three would make sense. Uh, I chose Nike partly because I thought I would be able to understand the issues that they were facing and uh, I also felt it was great that uh, uh, Phil Knight was still very involved in the company and. When I I got on McDonald's board, Ray Kroc was no longer alive, so I didn't have a chance to be able to see that genius up close and personal, but Mm. to be able to see Phil Knight in a leadership role, as he still serves uh, as a board member, was something really magical. Um, They've got a great team, and Mark Parker's put together there, and the way that they built that brand, and they've done it globally, it would just be a fantastic learning experience to be a part of it. And then hopefully I could contribute because I've had this long love of sports, mm-hmm. and um, would be able to use some of that knowledge and expertise to be helpful. What do you learn on a board, as an investor? I think oh, a couple of things. I would give examples. You know, uh, one, I used to be on the board of Bank One uh, before it was sold to J.P. Morgan Chase, and I think I'm a better banking analyst because of the years that I was on uh, first first Chicago MBD, and it morphed into Bank One. It made me a better banking analyst. Uh, I was on the board of Aon for 18 years. I'm a better insurance analyst and better professional services analyst because of that experience on those on those boards. What are the kind of things that you can see now that you couldn't see before? Well, you start to see um, you know, how really terrific management teams build a, an organization, how they achieve their goals, how they hold people accountable and make things happen. So when you're out doing research, you're trying to find Uh, similar companies Mm. that have those characteristics that you saw that were winning characteristics on those other companies. Um, I've often had a chance, whether it was McDonald's, uh, when Jim Cantalupo came back to get the company back on track or when Jamie Dimon came into Bank One, to see dynamic leaders come in and make change, create a plan to win. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking for that plan to win in the research that I have in the small and mid-sized companies that I've built my career around. And when I see those characteristics of someone who has that great plan and they're holding their team accountable and they're sticking to that plan and working that plan every quarter when we talk to management, it's a sign that I'm on to something good. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you see management teams that are distracted, you know, that's not going to be good. So I think you learn a lot about how to manage a wonderful business and the characteristics of it I think are uh, are really uh, important. And you understand some of the challenges that different industries can face and you look for those challenges when you're doing your normal research.
0: Yeah. Um, finally, as you look at the, the landscape now, all these years after you started Ariel, of uh, minority investment firms, is it what you expected that you might see in 2019? Um, what is there still to work on and what gives you um, encouragement?
1: It's been, a, it's been a real challenge. Um... You know, over the last 10 years, several of the outstanding minority-owned firms have disappeared since the financial crisis. They never quite got to scale, and when things got tough, they, they went away. Um, so it's, it's a tougher world for minority-owned investment firms than I ever would have imagined, in particular in investment management and mutual funds. I thought it would have gotten easier and more accepted than it has been. I think the other thing that has, has been interesting to me, I thought that the nonprofits would be the best customers for minority-owned firms, Mm. the universities, the museums, the foundations. And frankly, that's been the most difficult place to crack. Huh, why? I think they're used to thinking about minority-owned firms in terms of construction, supplier diversity, uh, catering, janitorial services we need to get rid of that term supplier diversity because the economy, as you know, has moved to a technology-based economy and a professional and financial services economy. Mm. You know, you either want to build Apple or you want to build Carlyle or, or KKR or Facebook. Uh, not no smaller businesses that are great businesses, but there's not as much opportunity in those in, as, the, as the economy is, 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 is adjusted. So I think it's really important that people making decisions and who believe in diversity and inclusion higher minority firms in the parts of the economy where the wealth and jobs are being created today. Right. And I think that's the challenge that we face, we have to educate folks around that because people have just gotten comfortable doing it the way they've always done it. And uh, because there's so much talent that's not being utilized. You know, as Reverend Jackson always says, baseball became a better sport once Jackie Robinson started to play and Willie Banks and Ernie Banks, I mean, sorry, Willie Mays and Ernie Banks. Mm-hmm. and. um you know, we need to have that in the financial services world, too. Indeed. And and you have certainly led the way. John, thanks
0: for the conversation. Really. Thank you. It's really fun. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you lending an ear.